0: The Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Meow.
1: Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF, or FOF, Friends on Friday. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer.
0: I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week politics program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California for Tuesday, October 6th, 2015. This, of course, was the week in which Republican presidential candidate Carly Fiorina told Fox News that she herself is, quote, distinctly horrifying to liberals, unquote. And she said it herself. <laughs> so thank you for joining us here today in San Francisco. We, we will try not to distinctly horrify anybody. Um, I'm John Zipperer, your host for week to week, and the Commonwealth Club's vice president of media and editorial. On today's program, we're going to talk about the presidential election campaign. Naturally, uh, we're also going to look at the this new Hoover study survey. Excuse me, into Golden State residents' views about the drought, water policy, who's at fault, what we can do. We'll also go in-depth on President Obama as he nears the end of his seventh year in the White House. And of course, we'll talk about some other political news. Naturally, the Commonwealth Club of California is a place for people of a very wide range of views. So any opinions that are expressed up here tonight are those only of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club of California, unless I agree with them, in which case (laughs) I will take full credit. Let's meet our panelists for today, and I'm going to start on the far end of the stage with Carson Bruno. He is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Next to him is Bruce Kane. He is the director of Stanford University's Bill Lane Center for the American West. And next to me is Bill Whalen, another Hoover Institution Research Fellow. If you noticed a bit of a a pattern here tonight, it is a Hoover and Stanford night. Um, But don't worry, because Bruce also works at UC Berkeley. (laughs) <laughs> so we've got everyone covered, and uh, so it's going to be a good program. Please use the question cards that are spread throughout the room to ask any questions. We'll collect them, and I will try to read as many as possible during the program. So now on to the round table, and let's start off with these research inst- the, the, this research results uh, of Hoover. I can't speak tonight. Um, Now, each quarter, Hoover's Golden State Poll asks California residents their views on state matters. And this quarter, the topic was the drought and and, uh, water policy. So Bill, lay the groundwork for us with this poll.
2: You can find the full results at the Hoover website, which is hoover.org. We asked, in addition to water policy questions, we asked uh, Californians to list what they think is the priority for state government to be addressing at this time. Usually, as long as we've been doing this poll, the economy leads this issue. It's address the economy, strengthen the economy. This time, it was the drought, plain and simple. So I think this shows that Californians have pretty much this in common, a lot of skin in the game. Uh, the results, I'll let Bruce and Carson get into the uh, finer details of the poll, but a few, well, a few carries away from it. First of all, um, there is a lot of what I'd call good Samaritan uh, aspects to this poll. Californians are willing to conserve. Californians are willing to share their groundwater supplies. Californians are looking for action. So it's, in all, a very positive finding. Uh, but you look deeper into the poll, and you find that there are some divisions among Californians. Uh, how exactly to go forward, divisions which divide people in terms of geography, in terms of partisan affiliation, in terms of, in some cases, age and gender, which Carson Bruce will explain. Um, but the timing we just felt was important because here we are in the fall of 2015. Maybe it rains this winter, maybe it doesn't. Maybe El Nino comes along, and if we're lucky enough to have it this far north, perhaps it replenishes our our Sierra water uh, pack. Uh, If we're lucky, perhaps it helps fill up our reservoirs, but it leads to another set of uh, water policy issues related to 2016 to go forward. So this is simply why we did the drought. We wanted to see what Californians were interested in. We wanted to see what, if any, divide there was between Californians and and get a measure for what they wanted moving forward.
0: Uh, maybe Bruce, uh, why don't you give us some highlights from the results? What, what stood out the most to you? Uh, what, what was perhaps the most surprising?
3: If you watched and followed the newspapers, you would see that there were some potential landmines for the governor when he went forward with his uh, proclamation on the drought and the policies that he implemented. For example, a lot of people in Southern California are upset that the baseline by which the cuts for different areas were determined was 2013 because in Southern California, they had confronted droughts before and they had taken more steps than we had in Northern California to conserve water. And in fact, in the, down in Southern California, the per capita use of water has gone down so that even though that area has grown, they're not per, per capita using more water. So taking 2013 punishes the cities that didn't start before, but our poll indicated that people were willing to go along with it. Yes, there was some regional difference, but it wasn't really great. Uh, The governor also, I think, has endorsed an all of of the above strategy, that is to say, If you listen to the partisan warfare about water, you would think that uh, we were very uh, divided as to whether or not we should build more reservoirs and more dams or whether we should go for aquifers and recycling water. In reality, what we found is that uh, the public that we surveyed was in favor of all of these things, as the governor's strategy was in favor of all these things. And indeed, the voters in supporting, I think it was Proposition 1 or 1A, uh, they ended up, uh, you may not have known it, but when you voted for that, you were voting for reservoirs uh, and dams as well as uh, water reclamation projects. So I think what we found was that the governor has been on pretty solid ground in terms of what he's done so far. But the reality is that what we've done so far is the easy stuff, okay? And uh, what we're facing is potentially a bigger, deeper problem for two reasons. One, it's quite possible that the water system we built was uh, during a period of relative wetness. So independent of climate change, independent of climate change, If you look back at the cycles of drought in California, historically, you see that we might have been, when we built our water infrastructure system, in a relatively wet period. And we may be in a drier period uh, just naturally. And then you add the fact that with climate change, there is temperature change uh, that is making the snow line recede. And uh, as a result, the system that we built, which stores water up in the mountains and brings it down by gravity, which saves us a lot of uh, power and energy, expense, that system is being undermined systematically. And uh, it's not clear that if we have to maintain the current level of cuts or if we have to go deeper, that uh, we're going to find a level of public support. I think the people I see in the
0: audience kind of fanning themselves are not going to argue that uh, it's getting <laughs> yeah. warmer. Um, Carson, get a, get a bit into some of these numbers now. What, what are some of the divisions we see? What are some of the, the actual uh, uh, results that people told you guys about how they feel and what should be done?
4: Well, I, I think Bruce really touched on this well in that Californians really aren't pointing their finger at any one group area in general when it comes to, uh, you do need to be doing more when it comes to kind of fixing the water situation. Uh, which is actually kind of rare, given the fact that this is kind of a crisis, and during times of crisis, people tend to kind of point to the other person, saying, oh, it's not my fault, it's their fault. Um, But what we're finding in these numbers are that Californians really want the state to be throwing the entire kitchen sink at this problem. Um, And whether it's environmental, whether it's agriculture, whether it's municipalities, they all need to be doing their part in kind of addressing the very structural deficiencies that this drought is exposing in how our water system is designed and Bruce touched on this really nicely also, that Sacramento needs to start thinking of the current situation as the new normal, even if it isn't the new normal. It uh, should be thinking like that because that's how you get real structural, fundamental reforms uh, through a, a what's somewhat dysfunctional Sacramento. Um, so just to kind of touch on some of the numbers, You know, it's interesting. We asked a bunch of policies that affect water use and also a bunch of policies that affect water supply. And you see clear either majorities or pluralities on uh, focusing on every single one of our water use uh, policies. You know, from restricting groundwater use at 67% of likely voters, all the way down to, as Bruce mentioned, uh, requiring the reductions, the conservation mandate to be set at that 2013 benchmark. (laughs) Um, that's at 45% amongst uh, likely voters. But that's still a plurality amongst the uh, the sample. Uh, if you go to the policies that affect water supply, everything from building reservoirs at 70% uh, to collecting, uh, tr- collecting and treating stormwater for potential use at 91%. Um, oh. And even uh, some things that might be a little bit more controversial, um, such as relaxing environmental laws to help aid the construction of new dams and reservoirs, uh, a majority of 53%.
0: I mean, I guess on that one, there was a party difference. There
4: is that that one that one is where the you really see kind of regional um, effects coming into play and also partisan effects. Um, You while 53% say, uh, yeah, let's go do it. Let's relax those environmental laws. Only 36% of the Democrats um, sampled suggested said said such. Now, Republicans, of course, at 76% um, and self-identified independents at our majority at 55%. Also, when you look at the regional uh, uh, composition uh, for relaxing environmental laws, here in the Bay Area, um, it was actually effectively split. 41 uh, support, 41 oppose. Uh, Whereas in both um, Central Valley and Southern California, there was majority uh, support there. Um, And the other one interesting, that's a little bit more controversial, and again, uh, we didn't go into kind of giving arguments for for or against any of these issues, um, but another interesting one was uh, building more desalination plants a- along the coastline. Uh, and there, 82% of likely voters, including 77% of Bay Area likely voters, um, so you definitely see a lot of consensus here in kind of the policies to attack the, the drought problem from both angles: the use of water, but also trying to build more supply, more resources. Uh, that is more of a long-term issue, not necessarily a more immediate.
0: Uh, focus. Well, let's all kind of get into the, the politics then of that. So Californians are basically saying a lot of these options, yes, we like all of these options. Do, do, do I don't know if you went into this or do you have a sense of when price tags start to get attached to that? You know, will you pay higher taxes to build a desalination plant and, and to whatever? Um, any sense of, of the, the price tag affecting those numbers?
3: Uh, we didn't push that as well as we should have. We didn't have uh, enough questions for that. But I think one thing that's pretty clear is that uh, currently we did ask about subsidies and one of the real problems with water prices is that you have people that have uh, rights that go back to uh, you know the early 20th century that get priority for surface water. Um, you have situations where, Farmers are getting the water in the Imperial Valley for $150 an hour uh, uh, per um, per acre foot. They're selling it to the city of San Diego for $1,000 per acre foot. And then desal costs you $2,100 per acre foot. So when you put those price tags on, you realize that one thing that's happening is we're not pricing water in an efficient way. Uh, And we kind of bury, uh, when it comes to electricity, uh, we pretty much, Kind of understand that there are peak rates and peak times, and we've sort of gone there. Where when it comes to water, water is treated as kind of a, a public free good, and uh, and in reality, is it isn't a free good. You has to be transported long distances. It requires a lot of energy to get it over the Tehachapi Mountains and send it down there. If we build these tunnels, we're talking about billions of dollars and in more infrastructure payment. Uh, the reality is that that infrastructure cost is buried in a lot of bond measures. So when you approve these bond measures, you do have to pay off those bonds. It's not free money. But it's like credit card uh, spending. Uh, America is addicted to that. It, it takes you away from the immediate choice of whether you want more water or not because you're not actually paying the price right now. It's being uh, fobbed off onto the future. So I do believe that, uh, that the pricing part is part of it. The other thing that was interesting, uh, and uh, Carson uh, uh, didn't quite mention it, but we did two experiments that I think uh, fall under the rubric that if you give people more information, their views may change, and hence they may change on pricing as well.
1: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW
0: and now back to the michelle
3: meow show so for example we did an experiment on uh, on basically what share of the water now goes to agriculture and if you give people no information and you say are you interested in or are you open to the idea of uh, reallocating water from agriculture to uh, urban and uh, industrial use, uh, you see a majority of people that say, no, let the farmers have their water. If you tell them that 80% of water used by humans is used by agriculture, you flip that around and you get a majority in favor of taking a look at that, including a number of Republicans. Republicans are mm-hmm. almost split down the middle on that issue. Okay? Uh, if you change it to a different statistic, which is, you'll see in the papers, which is uh, the total water in California, not just the water that's used by humans, then you find that it's 40% for agriculture and it's 50% that either flows out to the environment or is uh, used for uh, fish in the bay and only 10% goes to, and you get a slightly different, uh, still get close to a majority support. So information will matter a lot and if we go further into this, I think as people get more information, their views may change about Uh, decel as opposed to uh, reallocation. And and
2: something else we pushed on is the issue of recycled wastewater, uh, which uh, is moving along in Orange County, Los Angeles County, which, as you can imagine, has an enormous water system, is also uh, having preliminary conversations about how to implement this as well. And we asked a series of questions in the poll. We asked people without knowledge of how recycled wastewater works, would you be comfortable with the following uses with recycled wastewater? When you ask Californians, are they okay with using it to water their lawns, to wash their cars, to you know, water their trees, they think it's a great idea. But when you bring in the issue of human contact, do you want to bathe in it? Do you want to cook with it? Do you want to drink with it? In fact, let's, let's poll the crowd here. How many, how many of you would be comfortable having a nice cold glass right now of recycled wastewater? <laughs> okay, it's really hot in here, that's what it tells you. <laughs> I think in our poll question is, what, about maybe 10% yeah. of the
4: respondents? Uh, with, yeah. with no information provided, again, this was an experiment, so we provided right. uh, one, one of the contingents got no information, one got a little bit of information about how Orange County does their wastewater recycling, which is by far the most advanced and the most aggressive, um, I think, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another uh, third of the, the sample got even more detailed scientific right. details about how Orange County does theirs. Um, when you when you get no information at all, 10 percent uh, say, yes, I'd be willing to drink that recycled wastewater. Now, it, it does double um, you know, to 20 percent once you get the detailed information. Uh, but you're, you're not going to I doubt you're gonna ever, ever going to find a majority saying, yeah, let's 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 drink this yeah. wastewater. this gets
2: tricky is it's not a matter of Republicans hate it and Democrats love it or vice versa. We saw splits along the lines of gender. Yeah. And we saw splits along the line of age. So put yourself in the position of the marketing people in these water districts who have to sell this concept to people and think about what kind of public relations campaign you're going to come up to sell this to, a public which at first glance is kind of leery about the concept. Maybe maybe come 2016 or 2017, there's going to be Jerry Brown holding up a nice glass of water <laughs> saying, hmm, recycled wastewater, <laughs> yabba.
3: Yeah, you did that with Malathion. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, women are much less willing to bathe, drink uh, with uh, Wastewater, recycle wastewater, and younger people are more willing, willing to do it. So, yeah. men and younger people are more adventurous uh, even after you give them information. And yeah. I will let you guys sort that out <laughs> yourselves. So talk to your partners about that and um, we'll see.
4: Okay. It's, also, it's also interesting. Um, so of the personal uses and I classify the personal uses as drinking, cooking, bathing, filling your swimming pool, because you, you, you get contact there and then washing your clothes um, with, as more information is provided, the filling your swimming pool and washing your clothes does get into majority of individuals saying that, yes, I'd be willing to use the recycled wastewater for that purpose. Right. Um, and, and as Bruce mentioned, you know, younger voter, or younger individuals, and males tend to be a little bit more likely. Interesting enough, though, the the Bay Area um, is less likely when um, across across the board uh, to use it for those more personal issues Uh, so that was an interesting tidbit that i pulled out because the bay area has been in many other cases a a strong leader in pushing recycle recycling in general
3: and in some places using it for agriculture actually is uh, controversial although in in californians we didn't see that in the poll but i used to tease david kennedy who was my predecessor uh, with the uh, Bill Lane Center for the West because what he does regularly is he takes his uh, shower water and he saves it and he uh, he waters his avocado trees with this, <laughs> and then he serves it to us at our dinner <laughs> at the end. So, uh, you know, I, uh, well, we leave it at that.
0: <laughs> well, when, you, when you talk about, the uh, broad acceptance uh, that this—you know—people mentioning this is the number one issue in the state. It's not the economy, which you say it usually is. Um, that suggests to me because this is something that is affecting people now. It's not like it's a theoretical thing, you know. Therefore, that kind of tells me the messaging has gotten out. It do—is there any connection? Do you think they're making with Jerry Brown has been effective at this or? whoever has been you know that whether it's our local utilities that have been pushing
3: messages about conservation and such yeah actually i got an undergraduate to collect a lot of the information about the different approaches that the water districts are taking and i thought we would be able to assess which were the best practices but it turned out that it really there was no relationship whatsoever in other words sure. that tells you it's not whether you did tiered pricing or whether you had Uh, mandatory days when you couldn't water, or any of the other specific measures, it seems to be a cultural acceptance across the board of people that were in an emergency situation. Which is good news. It means that this country or this state is able to come together when under a crisis. The bad news is that if we have the El Nino that some people are predicting, and if indeed it drifts uh, far enough north, then we're back into the situation that uh, when it rains uh, temporarily, people will go back to their old. Or the pressure to go back to old habits is going to uh, come back again, and the reason to worry about that is that even if you have a couple good years of rain, what the scientists are telling you is that you have a long-term structural problem. Uh, in terms of the system that you have. And if we're going to have a sustained approach to this, if we're gonna solve that problem in a permanent way, we we have to look to the trend, not just to the yearly cycles. And that's a real problem that um, might come about if we end up having flooding and uh, we have enormous amounts of rain. So if you
0: were either a a lawmaker in Sacramento or you're advising a lawmaker in Sacramento, you used to work with uh, the governor, uh, Pete Wilson, what would you want? What, what could you take away from this that, that you can actually do something with? Because you do have this moment in time where people are focused on it, they recognize it, they're saying great things about what they want to do with it. What do you? What What would be some good moves for Sacramento to make? I would uh, task
2: my department of fish and game, my department of resources, every state department and agency that is involved in some way uh, with flooding and disaster relief. Uh, to give me a report on how prepared we are in case the Russian river floods, in case rivers in Central Valley and Monterey and others which stream out to the sea in which they flood, have we cleared debris? Uh, are our levees in sound shape? If you look at a countries, uh, states across America, which have had uh, droughts not as bad as California, but dry spells, it rains like crazy, and guess what? You find that your levees have been very weakened over this dry period. So, I would just have preparation reports for my people uh, maybe give a talk about it to a water agency, uh, bring reporters in and just talk about the fact that we're watching this and we're ready to respond if something happens. But just show that publicly I'm aware that a little bit of rain is not going to solve our problems. Bruce? Yeah. I mean, I think that's,
3: that's true. But I think the real problem is this long-term problem of a sustainable water policy. And uh, right now what we have is a land use policy which is out of control. And no matter what we do in terms of recycling or uh, clever ways of uh, finding more water, uh, it's gonna take us forever to build these dams and reservoirs, by the way, Uh, but we can't keep up with an unrestricted demand for water. And you have areas like the Coachella Valley which are building uh, golf courses. They have 121 golf courses down there. They have man-made lakes, okay? So you have uh, profligate use of water because it's subsidized in some areas. So we don't have an efficient water pricing. That That has to change. We have to look very carefully at whether the land use is linked to a water budget. And it's not just, I don't want to pick on Southern California and Coachella Valley. You're in Northern California, go ahead. (laughs) In Northern California, we have the same problem, exactly. And and, and let's not forget that there's a farming component to this, too, that we've allowed for uh, crops that are permanent and can't uh, be uh, made fallow for a year uh, because we now have high value crops that have trees that have to get watered from year to year. There's no restriction on the building of these orchards and uh, they're depleting the groundwater supply. We had basically a system where, okay, when the surface water wasn't there, people would pump the groundwater. Well, guess what? We're getting tremendous land subsidence in areas of the Central Valley. So land use policy has to be right at the forefront. We can't, you have to say to a region, you should take a basin in a region, you should say to it, look, you got a water budget. This is how much water you have right now. If you want to build uh, more residences or if you want to go ahead and put more orchards in, tell us where you're gonna get your water. Tell us what your, uh, what your plan is. Where are you gonna generate that water? And if you're, plan- if you're counting on water from the State Water Project, or if you're counting on water from the Colorado River, where there are growing communities in Las Vegas and Colorado and elsewhere, then you may be making bad assumptions that aren't gonna, uh, and we're not gonna bail you out. If you don't have the water for that, you're gonna have to suffer the consequences. I think that's the most important thing.
2: Okay. Now, if I put a solar roof on my house, I get tax benefits, correct? Uh, yes, you do. If I drop-proof my house in some way, if I change the landscape, if I put in a rock garden or a cacti, do I get a tax benefit?
3: Um, you don't get a tax benefit. In some communities, yeah, you, do you do get uh, rebates or uh, rewards of some sort, but it's not, uh, it's not a systematic policy. Right. Uh, but that's a, It is true. This is a good point, Bill, that if you think of the strategies, we need to do the conservation strategy first because that's the cheapest strategy. The most expensive strategy is the desal strategy, okay? It's alluring because you have all that water out there that actually could be used. But it turns out that to get the salt out of that water takes an enormous amount of energy to push it through the membranes. And then when you're done, you have this residual brine that you have to put somewhere, and you have to disperse it out to the ocean. And uh, if you don't do that properly, you can create dead zones. So the reality is, the cheapest thing we can do and the most important thing we can do right from the start is have a, a really strong conservation strategy that sustains itself beyond the El Niño. And that's where the land use policy can be uh, helpful, I think. Okay. Carson, your prescriptions for Sacramento.
4: I, I, I would. I would say this, we've asked now this top priority question in in quite a few of our Golden State polls. Uh, The first time we did it was back in uh, January 2014. Um, Back then, only 38% of Californians, this was registered Californians at that point, uh, said that dealing with California's water problems was the top priority for Sacramento to deal with. Uh, fast forward now to September, um, and this is among likely voters. But still, the number the, the jump is quite miraculous. 81% now say that that is the top priority for Sacramento, surpassing the, uh, strengthening the economy for the first time, um, surpassing a lot of other issues that Californians historically want Calif- or want Sacramento to be on top of all the time. Um, you can also track this explosion in the uh, in this question of the top priority with how much of the state is under an extreme or exceptional drought Um, back in December or January 2014, roughly, I I believe it was six percent, seven percent of the state's land mass. You know, that's roughly seven million ish people um, were living in areas of extreme or exceptional drought, the top two criteria or categories of drought. Uh, and fast forward to today, you're now looking at basically 95% of the population um, and basically you know, 77% or so of the, the, the state's landmass. Uh, so it, this is a crisis. Um, it is a crisis that people are now dealing with up and down the, the states from coastal to inland. Um, agricultural municipalities, uh, the envi- environmentalists and the activists who have to deal with this issue, um, and so you know, as Winston Churchill said, said, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, uh-huh. This is an excellent. Was it was a robbery. Winston Churchill gets. <laughs> Winston Churchill gets credit for it quite a bit also. Um, so someone stole it from someone else. Uh, someone said, never let a good crisis go to waste. This is an excellent opportunity for Sacramento to really get every single stakeholder at the table to make real long-term decisions uh, because, you know, it, Whether an El Nino actually does affect the water levels in the reservoir or the snowpack in the Sierra or not, it is going to change how Californians think about the drought. Um, And at that point then, Jerry Brown and many other legislative leaders will have kind of lost, I I believe, an opportunity to really try to hammer through a very long-term structural change to how California does water. Um, And we only have a little while left, I believe, to make that happen.
1: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
5: You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com.
0: And now back to the Michelle Miao Show.
4: I'm not going to give prescription because I think Bruce and uh, Bill have done it quite well. But the time the the clock is ticking, it needs to be done.
0: Well, before we move on to another topic, I wanted to ask you folks again a a question. So Governor Jerry Brown, when he was first starting to try to get people to realize the seriousness of this, noted that he was taking fewer showers. So can I ask you, a show of hands, how many of you have uh, cut back on showering or bathing? What? Maybe half? How many of you want Jerry Brown to start showering again? (laughs) A (laughs) few hands, okay, very good, very good. Let's discuss the latest in the eternal 2016 presidential campaign. Um, A lot has been going on. I actually want to start with New York Magazine, if any of you are familiar with it. Uh, Frank Rich uh, writes the cover story for the current issue that's out on the stands. He argues that Donald Trump is good for democracy, despite or actually because of his Trumpery, his, his outrageousness. Um, he says Trump is pointing out the, you know, this corrupt charade of our democracy uh, that, it, that it's become. Bill, do you, wanna, do you have anything to, to uh, respond to that? Do you think there's an upside to Trump?
2: I think Frank Rich wants to live in Trump Towers is what it sounds <laughs> like. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger ran in the recall, and uh, part of the promise of Arnold was he was going to rejuvenate democracy in California. Uh, in 2010, we had the lowest turnout ever for a gubernatorial election, so I'm not sure that I would point to Trump as a tonic for all things. Uh, I'm afraid I just take the opposite view. Donald Trump is ultimately vulgar, and he just represents a vulgarity that goes through our society, and it's Crude comments that people say on Twitter, and indeed, Trump is guilty of recklessly tweeting late at night. It's the fear of, I have a godson who I am always afraid of taking to sporting events because of the crude language you hear at a sporting event. It's just the very coarse fabric in society where people just don't act with a lot of dignity and decorum. And unfortunately, those are the people who he's appealing to in this election, and I don't see that as a positive for democracy.
0: Uh, Bruce, uh, does it hurt (laughs)
3: democracy? I mean, uh, I think there's something deeper than Trump's popularity going on here uh, that I don't think we completely understand, but we have some notions about. You can't help but notice that uh, both the Democratic and Republican Party right now have variants of populism uh, growing up on one wing versus the other. Uh, The one on the Democratic Party is a more traditional kind of populism. Bernie is kind of a man of the people, uh, railing against, uh, rightly, uh, uh, some tremendous increases in inequality that uh, have come into our society. And that's the traditional way that uh, populism, um, the traditional form of populism, a man of the people up against uh, the elites, the financial elites that are Mm -hmm. taking advantage of the system. The one that's a little strange is the one on the Republican side because here you have uh, basically the logic, it takes a billionaire to, to take care of the billionaires, <laughs> which is uh, something that we don't see quite as much of. We saw a little bit uh, earlier in 1992 with Ross Perot. Uh, you maybe have some parallels in Italy uh, with the Berlusconi phenomena. Um, but it does strike me as a, a, con, a rejection of two things. It's a rejection of the, uh, the style of conventional politics that has developed as a result of the professionalization of politics in America, where people are coached to say uh, pretty much the same thing. The party line goes out to everybody, everybody repeats the party line. Uh, there's uh, no real information given. Everything, everything's audience tested. The audience tested, poll tested. And yeah. so I think somebody that actually sounds like uh, your uncle, you know, your drunk uncle at the dinner table, <laughs> it is, uh, is refreshing, I guess, uh, to some people. Um, and, uh, I, but I also think underneath that there is this kind of malaise that the Democratic and Republican Party represent certain classes of the upper, middle, and uh, beyond. Uh, in the Democratic side, uh, Hillary really represents, uh, uh, to be honest, the professional class. You know, the, the lawyers and, the, um, and other members of the, uh, the sort of white uh, creative class, so, so to speak. And the Republican Party has the, the mainstream uh, you know, business class. And I think that left out is, uh, are, are people that um, are more on the fringes of the economy one way or the other, and the uh, Republican Party has pulled some of them into its ranks over the years, with uh, Pat Buchanan and uh, with uh, the, uh, the sort of the, God and the guns. social issues, the you know the God and guns. And the Democratic Party still has, uh, particularly the the, the minority working class is a disadvantage. So I think there is a deeper phenomenon under this uh, that uh, may play out in ways that are unusual that we haven't seen in our lifetime in terms of how uh, how the, the the November election plays out. It's just hard to say it. I. But I think it, it's not just about Donald Trump. There's something else going on there. Car- Carson, do you uh, want to defend Trump or are we gonna go three for three here?
2: <laughs> no.
4: I, you'll, you'll never hear me defending Trump. Um, the, I, I will echo what Bruce was saying, though, that there is something definitely happening. I mean, it's not just Trump. You, if you look at Ben Carson's numbers, if you, and you look at Carly Fiorina's numbers, um, you know, the, the three Trump, Carson, Fiorina uh, are at or over 50% amongst all the polls. Um, on the it, Republicans. On the Republican yeah. side, yes. Um, the, the Democrats are a little bit different because Bernie 's an outsider, um, but he's still part of the political class. I mean, he's been a senator for you know, for a uh, well, long, long time before that, a congressman, before that, a mayor. So, I mean, it, it's not like he is this outsider per se. He's been a part of Washington for a very long time. Uh, but still, there, there, there's that outsider to him that is very definitively anti-Clinton. Um, what is what I'm actually most curious about is what's happening at the next tier down in the polling, especially on the Republican side, you know, who amongst the next group, that next cluster that are all around the, you know, the, the low double digits to high, high single digits. Who's going to break out from there? Because that's that's the group that you really kind of see that a lot of the, the the players eventually getting behind the the, the people who really make or break campaigns at the presidential level. You know, that's Jeb Bush, that's Marco Rubio, um, that's even Ted Cruz. Um, He's, as much as he likes to call himself an outsider, he's still very much connected into the political network uh, nationally. Um, you know who amongst them are going to be able once to kind of break through the Trump Carson Fiorina crowd.
0: No, you, you mentioned Jeb. Mentioned Jeb Bush, and that Jeb Bush right? was assumed to be either the front runner yes. or waiting to be the front runner. As soon as Trump stumbled, right. he's now at what four percent. I mean, he's a margin of error. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, certainly, no, it's, 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 it's,
4: it's fascinating.
0: it really yeah. is. Yes. I mean, the the story is the popularity of of Dr. Carson and and. Uh, 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 Trump and, and uh, Carly Fiorina, the outsiders, but also the weakness of mm-hmm. the expected. Standards. I think there's a lot of
4: miscalculation on uh, the Bush campaign's part, but also uh, just I think everyone kind of got caught by surprise about what was happening. You saw it with Scott Walker, and you kind of see with Rand Paul, yeah. also Rick Perry, another one uh, who, who just who dropped out. Um, Rand Paul hasn't dropped out yet. Um, no, but Ray Rand Paul, one of wanted super PACs has just said, yeah. we give up, I mean, literally. Or, you can see the systematic, systematic kind of miscalculation amongst what the electorate is looking for, but also then how to run and appeal your campaign.
3: So I'll defend Trump, in okay? The okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I think you cannot discount the possibility that uh, Trump could be the nominee, and here's why. The way the, Demo- the rules in the Republican Party have been changed, he could easily, uh, as uh, you move past the first uh, few elections, start uh, taking advantage of the winner-take-all rules. So like the Democrats, the Republicans have been futzing with their rules, going between these proportional rules, which keep people in the game longer, and the winner-take-all rules, which basically give all of the delegates to the person who wins, that, whether they get a majority or not and Trump's numbers have been between 25 and 30 pretty consistently, uh, and it's entirely possible that the system will uh, give him uh, a growing share of these numbers. And the polling that I've seen indicates that over 80% of the Republicans said that they would support Trump if he was on the final ticket. So I think before you dismiss him as a marginal figure, I think you have to realize that it's entirely possible that uh, some combination of the rules and some combination of party loyalty could actually produce Donald Trump as the candidate.
2: Now what'll be interesting Uh, will be if Trump, this is kind of ironic given that he's worth anywhere from what he claims 10 billion to three, which others report, (laughs) if he's willing to crack open his own piggy bank. He's spending money on flying his 757 around the country, he's hiring staff, he's doing polling, Uh, he has a campaign, but he's not spending money on advertising You notice about two weeks ago, he got into yet another feud with Fox News. And this time he said, I'm not doing Fox News anymore. That lasted about five days. and I think he came to this conclusion. Much like Hurricane Joaquin running up the East Coast, he needs Fox News for warm water to refuel himself. If he doesn't go on Fox News, if he doesn't go on O'Reilly or Hannity or Greta and get what is essentially free national advertising, He's got to crack open his own piggy bank and start spending on his own advertising. I just have a hunch, people who get as wealthy as Donald Trump, one of the reasons why they're that wealthy is because fundamentally they're cheap. So. Keep an eye to see. Jeff Bush is going to spend about $25 million, I think, shortly on advertising. Yes. I wish him luck is like trying to light a wet log, I think, frankly. <laughs> but, <laughs> let's see if Trump, as we move along in the primary process, once we get past the early states in February, once we get out into the, into the water spectrum, if he's willing to spend what it takes to get the nomination. Because that's, you know, if he's willing to spend $50 or $100 million, million to get the nomination, then. Yeah, watch out. Katie, blow the door.
1: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with
5: John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
4: The question is kind of when Iowans start really paying attention, and that doesn't really normally happen until you get really kind of close to the holidays, if not past the holidays. Um, New Hampshireites, New Hampshire Inns, what, what, are, what are they called? I'm not even sure. Um, once they start paying attention, what ha- starts happening? And you're starting to see the numbers Especially amongst not only Trump but also Carson, um, uh, starting to deflate. Not much, not a lot, but they are starting to deflate, um, and you're starting to see a, a Rubio surge. Now, is Rubio surging too soon? Um, that could be the case. You know, could there be could there be someone else in the in the wings? That could be the case. But for someone like a Rubio that has to go up a up against the Bush juggernaut and the Bush's campaign for all of what they're the flaws might be there. It's extraordinarily uh, well-funded, extraordinarily well-organized. Uh, they have boots on the ground and basically every single early state plus some, and they have the money to be able to just hammer every single opponent. Um, stuff that really no one else right now in the field has currently, Trump has the money that he could put into the, into the campaign.
0: And he certainly, I mean, free to hammer the other. Oh, yes, yeah, he has has no problems about
4: that. But he doesn't have the boots on the ground. He is very minimal uh, and very non-professional uh, uh, people on the ground, quite honestly. He has people that he pulled from the Trump organization who know nothing about how Iowa works, how New Hampshire works, how South Carolina works, um, what these people are looking for, how to put on a political, uh, in a caucus particularly, how to actually organize a caucus and get your people to the the caucus location in the middle of an I- Iowa winter. I mean, it's not an easy thing. You know, A lot of people kind of push aside the organization that is required. Um, and he's that, and that, that will kill a lot of campaigns. And so start paying attention to kind of this, and I, again, this next group t- down, kind of what, how Rubio's doing in comparison to Bush or Cruz um, or Kasich maybe uh, in some of the early states because it's not gonna be who comes out maybe first in some of these states, they'll be the eventual nominee, especially in this jumbled mess, uh, but kind of who, who is the unexpected kind of winner of the game, pulling a Bill Clinton of.
0: I was just going to say uh, he, yeah. he was not first, but he really wrote. He knew exactly. how to spin that third place uh, result. Expectations
4: matter, especially in a situation like this, I think.
0: Um, these guys are all pundits, so I think we should put them on the spot. Right. And someone asked us, who do, who do they think would be the nominees? So let's go down the line start with you, Bill. Who do you think will get the nomination? I know it's early. It's too early, no, but we're this,
3: gonna do it. This
2: was Bruce Cain's great idea, so you go first. <laughs> um,
3: I'm, uh, I've actually announced this to the students, which really puts me on the line because <laughs> they'll track me down all year if I'm wrong. But I think Marco Rubio is the one who's going to prevail. And the reason I think so is that um, he, uh, he's a very good fundraiser. He's, uh, I think, done well in the debates to date. And he is the only one, I think, of the three sort of establishment uh, candidates, and I don't put Cruz in that category. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, I, I think that he's the one that could reach over and bring in uh, the conservative candidates to a or conservative voters to a greater degree. The one real problem for him was his uh, foray into immigration reform. Uh, And that, I think Trump has made his life more difficult by uh, making immigration a big issue. But immigration really always sort of flares up early in these nomination processes. And then when you actually look at it, it's not a number one issue for people. But
0: that that was an area in the last debate where, uh, if you saw it, Marco Rubio did push back on Trump on on immigration and and, uh, made a bit of a mark there, I think, in, in people's memories. Okay, Bill, you can't escape it. I don't. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be boring. Actually, I,
2: the answer is I think Rubio. In this regard, there are 15 Republicans running right now. If you subtract Rand Paul, who I think we all agree is just pretty much running on empty right now, and then you take away the four goobers who were debating in the first uh, first debate at the uh, Reagan Library, uh, you're now down to about nine Republicans, who I break into three categories. There are the three outsiders who we've mentioned. And that's Trump, uh, Fiorina, and Carson. There are three uh, candidates who excel at anger, and that is Huckabee and, uh, hello, there's Huckabee and um, Cruz and uh, Chris Christie. These are all kind of railing against something at all times. And then there are three Republicans left who the party would look at and say, these three guys have a shot at winning a national election. That's Rubio, that's Bush, and that's John Kasich from Ohio. Uh, but of those three, I would take Rubio. Uh, for two reasons, number one, as Bruce mentioned, he is formidable at fundraising, has done well debates, but secondly, Kasich and Bush are both saddled by common core, which I can tell you from having looked at focus groups and polling with Republican primary voters is just about the kiss of death with them, they hate common core, so I would argue that actually immigration is probably less of a burden for him to carry. The one interesting thing about Rubio, I'd note by the way, he's 44 years old, he'll be 45 next year, You have to go back to 1856, and the first Republican nominee, the illustrious John C. Fremont from here in California. That's how long ago it was, a California Republican was the Republican nominee. he was, he was 40, I think 43 when he got the nomination. Republicans don't do youth, the Democrats do youth. They do Obama, Clinton, John Kennedy, all in their 40s. Republicans go for somebody in their 60s or 70s. This is up and down and down of up in 2016. The Democrats have a nominee in waiting, who'll be 69 next year, and the Republicans could, Republicans could very well nominate somebody who'll be 24 years younger. So again, just a topsy-turvy election.
0: Okay, Carson?
4: I'll start with the easy one. I- I think it's gonna be hillary clinton
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know you're, I, you're playing I, to the audience okay right? exactly <laughs> do the
2: bernie poll are
4: we? <laughs> I, um, we it's definitely vulnerabilities there uh even if biden gets in which biden does pull more from hillary than he does from bernie sanders i just don't really see a path that bernie can really kind of pull a pull and obama and knock off the clinton machine uh, in 2016. Um, the difficult one, <laughs> Republicans, um, you know, I'm gonna go along uh, with my two colleagues up here. Uh, at this point, it does look like Rubio is the one that can pick up the pieces uh, whenever people actually start to vote um, next year. He is the one that can kind of bridge that establishment outsider sort of gap uh, that you see kind of brewing. Uh, he is a very talented campaigner, um, not just fundraising, but also just messaging. And I think his message is, is a lot fresher, but more optimistic. Um, and optimism does play out better than fear or anger in the long run. Um, and even with the RNC trying to shorten the calendar a little bit, um, this still is gonna be, you know, it's a long haul. It's not, it's not an easy, um, trick by any measure. So I think he has kind of the, the, the qualities that would be able to help maintain this kind of rise that you're seeing right now in the polling.
0: Okay, so they all agree. Uh, how many of you <laughs> agree that Marco Rubio is a likely Republican nominee? Wow. <laughs> Some. Who do Some. you wish would be the... Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to run down the list of all 15 folks. But, uh... well, try Trump anyway. How many people think Trump? Anyone think Trump will be it? Any Trumpers? one, two. We do? So is it You want him to be, or are you? She, okay. <laughs> no, I'm, you, can, you can support Trump, that's, that's your view. It's, but she's emphatic, she doesn't. So, Well, let's uh, talk about the Democrats, and I'm going to posit something, which is Hillary Clinton's had some pretty rough weeks. I think she's had a pretty darn good week, one of which was a gift from Kevin McCarthy. Uh, we'll explain that in a moment, and the other is, for example, three recent polls showing her maintaining or even expanding her lead within her party. So let's start talking about Kevin McCarthy and, and, and go with you first, Bill. Thank you. What did, he stepped in it, didn't he? The new McCarthyism. Um, <laughs>
2: so Kevin McCarthy is uh, the house majority leader. He may very soon be the new house speaker. He's a Californian. He's from Bakersfield, so we're in this very strange uh, existence. Where we're about to have a second California House Speaker, which historically does not happen. Uh, but Speaker-to-be McCarthy did something which can best be described as somewhere between stupid and clinically stupid. And he went on Sean Hannity's show, and he was talking about. That wasn't the stupiders Actually, that was part of the stupid thing. Oh, okay, uh, he went on Sean Hannity's show and he started talking about Hillary Clinton sinking poll numbers. And he said, "Look at her sinking poll numbers. We started an investigation on her on Benghazi, and look what's happened to her poll numbers." And. This is the proverbial speaking a drought. This is manna from heaven if you're a Democrat, because when your party and your nominee is being challenged in a congressional investigation, what's your default What's your default position? It's partisan, it's a witch hunt. You're just trying to character assassinate that person. Here is Speaker McCarthy giving you the soundbite and the deed if you turn on TV right now. There is already an advertisement to the effect of showing him saying those words. So you probably noticed, or if you, if you haven't followed closely, Speaker McCarthy, Speaker Reed McCarthy, has gone dark for the last several days. Uh, he has not talked since then. He has issued a statement saying that's not what he meant. He's been out privately fundraising and talking to Republicans in private. It's a very bad moment for him, and it raises this question. Kevin McCarthy, as recently as a decade ago, was just a Republican lawmaker from here in California, a state lawmaker of legislature, which is a very backbenching existence. He then got a remarkable fast track. He got elected to Congress. He quickly got himself into the number three position. Then Eric Cantor, the number two, got kicked out of office. He jumped up to number two, and now John Boehner is leaving a little unexpectedly early. He's going to be a Speaker of the House with precious few years in Congress. He is green, and as you saw from the sound bite, you may be prone to rookie mistakes, and if you're a conservative who's not too sure about him, this makes you very uneasy right now.
3: Bruce, uh I think think that the, uh, there was no question that it was a gift, uh, but I think that it was also going to be a problem in the long run stringing out the Benghazi and the email controversy. I think it's pretty clear at this point that the law was at best ambiguous and probably uh, she was right that she wasn't required at that time, even though many agencies were adopting Uh, the email policy, and I think a lot of the email policy was kept alive by the press that wanted to get some of the details of her personal life, and so they got stories out of it. But in reality, when you think about it, the email policy is something we're going to have to think through because on the one hand, employers don't want you using uh, your uh, business email for personal uh, stuff, and on the other hand, uh, uh, there's an expectation now that email is part of the that's going to be archived for history. And uh, keeping these two things separate, my guess is that uh, people don't do a very good job with that. I, so I certainly don't. I use my Stanford uh, email for personal business. Um, and I, my guess is that uh, the difference here is that she's working in the area where there's classified stuff. And if there had been something that had come across her uh, her email that had obviously been classified at the time and she knew it, then I think they've got they've got her. But it's not clear to me that they've got that smoking gun yet. So uh, to me, it wasn't clear that, uh, also with the Benghazi that there was ever, it seemed to me that they haven't really been able to show in any way, shape, or form that she made a, a decision or a choice that really... Uh, was a mistake so to me the Benghazi thing was always more about rallying the Republican base to get the money and get the organization going to get but it wasn't going to be a November election that was going to pull off any Democrats and it wasn't obvious that it was explainable to the independent voters so to me I didn't really think that that was going to be a November issue I saw it more as a primary issue but uh, you know let's see how she does in this debate I mean the real question that we haven't talked about is what Biden gonna do okay uh, now the polling, even with Biden in it, is showing that Hillary's got a lead of about uh, you know, 10 to 20 points, depending upon uh, there are some states that she's losing. Uh, in, but basically, on the general polling, even with Biden in there, she's winning. So Biden knows that. And Biden knows that, uh, that Hillary's been given a gift. right? And Biden also knows there's a debate coming up. Now people say, well, why doesn't he jump in the debate? Well, the smart thing to do is to wait and see how she does in the debate. Right? And if she falters greatly in the debate, then Biden can say, OK, look, you've got somebody wounded by Benghazi and the email, and uh, she didn't do very well in the debate. Uh, makes sense for me to get in, even though my numbers right now are behind hers. But if she does fine in the debate, and remember that she was really a better debater uh, than Obama was. Uh, Obama was better at, sp- at speechifying, but in terms of debating, Hillary's pretty damn good. She's, uh, she's a smart cookie and she's gonna be well prepared. So the odds are I think that Biden's gonna look at this and unless there's a huge stumble, unless she makes a big mistake, I think Biden stays out if that, ha- if that happens and she has a really, really good month coming up and, uh, because if Biden doesn't go in, I don't think the Democratic Party is going to nominate a socialist, despite the best expectations and hope of the Republicans on either side, I don't think that's going to
0: happen. One of the, new, the emails that came out recently, I think makes, would make people like her more. It, it, it is a, an email in which she's complaining about her difficulty in getting the White House phone operator to let her through, because the phone operator is saying, I don't believe you're Hillary Clinton. And so the can you tell me your your phone number there? And Hillary's like, I don't know my phone number. I don't call myself, so I have to go around this other way. Well, like there, a, a there was one today
2: where it showed an email where she said, uh, "How are things going in basketball? Crazy Indiana poll." Uh, she thought the capital of Indiana is not Indianapolis but Indiana Poll. So, but John raises a point here in that you know there's actually I think kind of an easy fix for her campaign. She has to introduce a certain joyfulness to her campaign that hasn't been there so far. And this is tricky for her because her public demeanor is not to be joyful. She is defensive. And part of that, I think, she's guarded. But also, she's been through twenty, almost 25 very bruising years in the public spotlight. But she is doing something historic at the end of the day. She is probably on a course to become the nation's first woman nominee of a major party. And she could become our first woman president. I think she needs to reintroduce this concept that she's part of a larger movement. And on a personal level, point out the fact that, yes, I'm going to point in my life where I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother. This is my last campaign. It should be for her more of a celebration than the sort of dirge which it's been so far. Mm-hmm. It's hard for her to do this. She is not in the same position that Obama was in 2008, where Obama, in addition to being 20 years younger, also had a large historical tailwind to him and a real appetite for change. But I think she has to, in some way, introduce a more upbeat nature. And, you know, she was on Saturday Night Live this weekend. And I'm certainly not a Hillary Clinton fan, but I gave her two thumbs up. She did a really, really good job on that. And she showed she can be funny and she could take a job. And a lot of little vignettes like that, I think, will just kind of help, help correct the ship.
0: Well, listen, thank you. We're going to have some more news quiz questions as well as a lot more to talk about uh, on Wednesday, November 4th at noon right here in San Francisco. Thanks to our panel, Carson Bruno, Bruce Kane, and Bill Whalen. Thanks to all of you here in our audience, listening online, and watching on TV. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.
1: so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week.